Blog Talk Radio. The New African Broadcast speaks to the free-thinking movement that we see emerging in the minds of today's black youth of America. African youths must be re-educated to the scientific reasoning found in natural law if this movement is to reach its full potential. Inshallah, the African American will break free of non-scientific and tribal thinking paradigms that fail to counter immoral behavior as well as limit solid economic progress in African American communities. As-salamu alaykum. Take the chains off me, get this modern day slave offering, I'm just trying to be free, I love life, I'm just trying to be me, and I don't really care what society says, cause if I left it up to them, I'd probably be dead, but no, I feel the blood pumping through my veins, like, the people need to stop and get some things right, let's get back to the family, I don't like the news, but the news talk tragedy and politics. Red and blue, two sides with the gang of you Make a vote for it, make a song that can maybe grab a quote from it Don't let the revolution leaders never run from it Pick my mind and see what come from it Find King standing in the heat like the bus coming And I don't need luck, I've been blessed from the most time Trying to go more time Cause the people say they want it But the people never realize the rain till it's storming What's up? Brother, you taking the ghetto, you find a whole lot of crime I can understand, hey, I know what it means. That's one thing the educators and the politicians and the establishment got to remember. Now, brother, please, y'all. I'm ready for it, my focus up. My fist in the ass so they know it's us. Young black leaders, new Africans, they can't wrap trash in some new packaging and try to sell it to me. I'm cool loud in the streets with a college degree. I work for it. Ain't nobody got it for me. I can give you my reality, gon' sell you a dream. I'm solo to the dolo, couldn't sell you a team. But I practice what I preach, I can sell a belief. Cream rise to the top, bulls set up beneath. Before you jump out the block, first set of your feet and run for it. If you want it, you should go for it. Break the reverse, only go for it. Pray for it till you're so sure you walk on faith, blindfolded by the brochure. Uh, Stevie Wonder to my worst critic. Seemed like another leaping when I first did it. Worked all night, no sleep, put a bread on the table and the shoes on my feet. I'm so the definition of the definition. About time I got some recognition. And I told him to take the chains off me. In this modern day slave off me. So you got to have mind power to deal with salvation. And that's what we're dealing with. See, we can't go back to the biblical story of two loaves of bread. Or two little fishes, five loaves of bread. Two little fishes, yeah. You know what? You can't eat dust. You know what? You can't eat everyone for tuning in to this edition of A New African. 
And I like to now give you the greetings of peace in the Quran and Arabic language. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Muslim Shaheed. I have with me right now online hosting the show this evening, uh, Yasin Shaheed. And I like to give you the greetings. The greetings also, brother Shaheed. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Uh, tonight we're going to have with us a special guest. Uh, Imam Muhammad Sadiq will be with us for the next few weeks here on the new African show. And he'll be talking about uh, an enlightening discussion about his uh, coming into and the learning of the religion of Al-Islam, but not just the religion of Al-Islam in a simple sense of the word or just a pure religious sense of the word, but how the religion of Al-Islam has affected his life as being an African-American individual here in the United States of America, Imam Muhammad Sadiq has been a Muslim following the religion of Islam for almost 60 years. So he's going to take us back, and we're going to learn a lot about this, not only the religion of Al-Islam, but how the African-American experience here, the so-called civil rights movement during the 50s and 60s and on up to date. I'd like to now bring in uh, Brother uh, Imam Sadiq. Uh, good evening, and assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum as Alhamdulillah, Imam Sadiq. And thank you for being on the new African show. And this is very a good experience for us. And I'm, and I'm sure the listening audience will benefit a lot from what you have to say. Uh, I want to, uh, before we get started, Brother Imam, uh, just to get a little bit about your background here, uh, tell us a little about, a bit about uh, what part of the country that you uh, grew up in, and also a little bit about uh, your educational background. Well, I was, <clears throat> well, first of all, let me say with Allah's name, the merciful benefactor, the merciful redeemer, and I bear witness this, but one God, Allah, and I bear witness Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And uh, to answer your question, where I grew up, uh, sort of facetiously putting it, I was born in a city, they say, where you iron all day and steal all night, uh, which is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is uh, the home of steel and iron. And uh, so we grew up there in Pittsburgh, it was called a hilly city, and uh, we experienced quite a few uh, wonderful things and, and uh, impressionable things in growing up there because uh, it's where I opened, my eyes were opened up to Islam, and my eyes were opened up to the ways of the world as well. Yes, sir. So how was the, uh, the educational experience? I mean, what did you do as you, you grew up, and, and, and how did you pursue your education? I know in the past we've talked about some of the uh, areas of, of, of education and various institutions that you have went to and also been a instructor or lecturer on. So give us a little historical background on this also. Well, I uh, I attended, uh, of course, the typical traditional schools, which was the um, uh, middle school and elementary school and high school in Pittsburgh. I went to Shinley High School, Heron Hill Junior High School, and uh, Madison Elementary School. And it was there that I, uh, you know, became uh, aware of I needed to go to college. In fact, I, I always say 
there was this uh, lady at my on my job. I was working at a department store. I was working as a busboy. And I had graduated from high school, and I had some scholarship offers that I was looking at and was going to start thinking about starting school a year after graduating. But uh, <clears throat> I say Miss Plutnicki sent me to college because she told me, she said, boy, get down on your hands and knees, and I want you to wash all these chair boards. Now, this place was huge. This was a big, <laughs> fancy restaurant in downtown Pittsburgh in, in what is now Macy's Department Store. And so... <clears throat> After she left and we were standing there, um, myself and some of the other bus boys, one famous one who his name is Adam Wade, who's a singer, used to be the host of Musical Chairs. Anyhow, I told him, I said, man, I can't do that. So I went and I got me one of those uh, sticks, and uh, like a broomstick, and I put a rag on the end and put some oil on that bad boy. And I said, I went around that whole place, and in 10 minutes I was finished, you know. Well, she came in the next day, and she looked at that, and she said, she called me into her office. She said, didn't I tell you to clean the chair? I said, yes, ma'am, I did. She said, no, you didn't do it the way I said do it. So she told me what she wanted. I said, yes, ma'am. I never got disrespectful to her. But I, after the, I punched my card and left, I headed for the Army-Navy store, Took my little bit of cash that I had, got me one of those uh, used uh, Army, old Army Navy uh, uh, foot lockers, and got me some uh, Goodwill stuff, and called the coach at the college and told him I was coming early, and I got on the bus the next morning. I was gone, so that's how I entered into college. <clears throat> and then when I got there, I got the biggest shock of my life because I wasn't prepared, and I had made a big mistake when you come in in the middle of the year. You come in in uh, in January. Everything right. that you take is the second phase, second part of what went on from September. So here I'm. I'm in algebra two. I'm in zoology two. I'm in botany two. I'm in psychology two. And everybody in in the uh, in these courses, they had already had algebra one, botany one, zoology one. And so you can imagine what my my first report card looked like coming out of my first year in college. You could probably, <laughs> you know, that's what it looked like. So anyhow, uh, that woke me up. I had to drop out of school right after just going to school for just uh, half a year because I wasn't prepared. But I knew what I had to do because mm-hmm. then I went back to the pool room. I'm gonna be slick, you know. I'm gonna be slick in the pool room. I learned I, I was a good pool shooter and I also could play cards pretty well. And I knew some other little tricks that I would not even go into. But uh, the boys in the in the hood, one thing about them, they stayed on you. They they stay on you so bad. Oh, look at this! You you know the language. Look at this nigga. He think he college boy. Right. He gonna play tap all day long. Is that what they teach you in college, boy? I mean, they they got on me so bad. It was like a lot saying, "Get on him," because it, it hit me and hurt my heart, you know. So I went back to school with a vengeance and. Uh, when I finally finished, in fact, they weren't even prepared for me to do my student teaching. I majored in biology, and I did that because I was thinking about going to med school. And um, when I, I took, got a teaching degree, but um, you know, you're supposed to be prepared to supposed to do your student teaching. You had to have a certain grade point. They just didn't believe it was possible that I could come from what I uh, exhibited when I first stepped in the door to what 
they required to get out the door. Now, what school, what school was this? What school was this, brother, in, man? What co- California University in Pennsylvania. It's a state school. Okay. That was, that was the college that I attended, you know. So anyhow, I uh, Allah blessed me, and I uh, uh, went all the way up to completing everything. But then the psychology of what was going on in, in the country was so traumatic <clears throat> that I said, to hell with this white man's school, to hell with this white man's education, to hell with this white man. I mean, I'm I'm busy looking at what's going on in Detroit, in the, in the riots in Detroit. <clears throat> I'm looking at what's going on in Watts. I'm looking at what's going on in Huff. I'm looking at what's going on all across the country. And I'm I'm seething. I'm seething. And then if you know anything about the 60s, I mean, the 60s was something else. And 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 so I'm I'm so hot. I said to hell with. It. I just quit. And I told my wife, I, you know, we I just got married down in Valdosta, Georgia. I said, come on, we're out of here. So we jumped on a train. And I said, she said, well, her mother asked, well, where are y'all going? I said, well, first thing we'll get out of the United States. I said, I'm gonna get, find the closest border, closest northern border that I can find. And so we went up to Canada. And and uh, while I was up in Canada. I had already been attending uh, the, uh, the the temple as well as various mosques in Pittsburgh. And uh, while I was up in Canada, I, I associated with the uh, with the Orthodox Muslims from mostly from India and Pakistan and and uh, from uh, many European countries, Bosnia and places like that. And uh, anyhow, I wasn't satisfied with that. And so I came back into the United States and and um, did what I had run from all that all along while I was involved with Islam, and that was to go ahead and write the letter that they had told us to write to get your ex, and I did, and that's when I uh, officially affiliated with Islam. Though I started in uh, in '56, I did not write the letter '65. But but tell tell us a little bit about the year 1955 or 56 and the years that uh, pretty much led up to Al Islam and your first going to the temple because you know uh, uh, my understanding from Imam Wardi Muhammad the late Imam Wardi Muhammad may Allah be pleased with him and grant him paradise is the most profound teacher. Uh, on religion and human uh, nature, but uh, when we was writing these letters, a lot of the brothers at that time, you know, couldn't read or write too good, and a lot of that was just done to develop their reading and their writing skills. But uh, but in, in terms of just coming to the, the the religion period of the nation of Islam, uh, so if you was already in nation of Islam, you know, you're still on the whatever doing the fish or whatever they were doing at that time. I don't know. I'm going to listen to you, but tell me about what was kind of going on in the, in the 50s at the time when you first came into uh, the being around the nation of Islam. Well, I'll even go back. I'll go back to the 40s, you know, and that was okay. uh, in, in, uh, in my home. We, I lived in a nine-room house, and on the first floor, it was th- we had three rooms on the first floor, and it was six of us on that, and, and, and my two other brothers, my mother, my stepfather, we call my pops, I won't call him stepfather, and uh, and also um, my grandmother, okay? 
So six of us, and keep in mind, one of the rooms was a kitchen, okay? So we had, so you can imagine what we had going on there. On the second floor were the people who, who were the children of the owners of the house. And on the third floor was a family <coughs> called Bay. They were the Bays. I believe they were Moorish Americans. I, I was, first I was thinking Akhmadiyya, but I'm almost sure they were Moorish Americans. And uh, I, from the time I was just a child, I was always curious about the Bay family. And I would go upstairs and, and uh, just play with the Bay children. And uh, they had all these various traditions that had were totally different than anything that we were doing at my church or my Sunday school where I was in attendance. And so uh, subliminally I was being impressed by Islam because I was constantly at their home every day, and they were Muslim, and they they were serious practice practitioners of uh, of uh, <clears throat> of Islam, and so with that, you know, I would constantly be playing with the children. Then when we were going to school, they they were in our school and in our classes, and they had uh, various bays in the different grades, and so um, I was subliminally induced into uh, uh, Islam. And uh, then as we got older, then with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad writing a column in the Pittsburgh Courier, see, there was no way for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, there was no Muhammad Speaks newspaper, there wasn't a newspaper at all. And so Mm -hmm. the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, the way he communicated to the greater public was an article that he wrote in the Pittsburgh Courier. Now, I think he tried to get it into other papers, but they were they denied him. But the Pittsburgh Courier opened the door and allowed him to write this article. And in that uh, writing of the article, he caught the attention of a particular, I think it was a Baptist minister. Mm-hmm. And the Baptist minister began to criticize and, and condemn what he was doing. And so what they, they get into a ongoing debate in the paper and so that was selling papers, and the Pittsburgh Court was quite pleased with that. And so then many of us would, uh, in associating with the uh, some of the rank-and-file FOI, they would take so many Pittsburgh Courts somewhat in the way that we took the uh, the Muhammad's paper and then take and sell the Pittsburgh Courier to the people as they were getting off the streetcars or getting off the buses or, or as they were traveling in the, in the busy streets of, uh, of Pittsburgh. And so that, these were things that, that, that impressed me. And then I'm watching the FOI in their unique uh, costume of the bow tie and, the, and the, the suit and the white shirt and little briefcase on their way to meetings. And this caught my attention and impressed me. And so uh, though I was active in my own church, my heart was with Islam. And I began to uh, attend to the meetings at the temple starting around 1956 under uh, the minister called Minister Robert, whose later name was given Mustafa, Mustafa Hussein. And so I attended uh, quite regularly, you know, and then while I was in college, I bought my whole uh, running buddies. We were uh, were all on the football team together, and we were were all uh, friends, I think about six of us or something like that. And I brought them to uh, as many of them who would come to the meetings. 
and I can still see my roommate now standing up questioning and challenging some of the ideas that uh, representatives of the Nation of Islam. But anyhow, that's how it all began for me. <clears throat> and I uh, then, uh, as I said, I became uh, active after coming back out of Canada in 65 and where I wrote the letter. We have had to write a Savior's letter. And uh, I knew that. I, I'd been carrying it, that letter. I had the letter in my pocket. They gave me, in fact, Minister Lonnie or Dr. Shabazz had given me the letter to carry. And he was in Washington, D.C. because I had moved to Washington and I was working at Howard University Medical School and uh, doing research there in cardiovascular research. And so I had the letter with me. And so I uh, took it out and it was wrinkled uh, existence and sat down and wrote the letter. And I just want to make a comment on the letter real quickly. Mm-hmm. It was not only – the letter really was a form of discipline because <clears throat> you had to really take your time and copy what you saw and you had to follow as best as you could the penmanship that uh, that the, that the um, – letter that you were copying exhibited and so we had to copy that and we had to copy it exactly the way it was we couldn't add a comma a period a capitalization or a small letter where the others were called for anything we if we left one thing out the letter would be rejected and you had to start all over again you couldn't erase if you made a mistake you couldn't erase you couldn't write over top of like you know if you we're trying to make a letter, and you you try to write over it. And right. It. Couldn't do that. So it was a very strict way of uh, of uh, of getting us uh, disciplined and to get us prepared to come into the nation of Islam and be willing to follow instructions. And uh, it it was it had it had a lot of benefits to it. Brother, I see you. You got a question. Yeah, I'm American. Can you, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, go right ahead. I'm American, brother. Yeah, this is Yasin Shahid. Yes, sir, brother yeah, Shahid. Uh, I'm, I'm all right, all right. Um, I want to ask you a question. Uh, you said, uh, well, first of all, I got a couple of questions. Uh, go right ahead. You came into, <laughs> before you came into Al Islam. Uh, what religion? What was your faith? My faith, I believed at the time, my faith was Christian. I was okay. Trinity. I went. I attended the Trinity. Now keep in mind. Look at look at the name of this this school, this church I attended. Trinity, A M E Church. Okay, I attended the Trinity A M E Church where my mother was the uh, head of the usher board. And uh, my brother, my two brothers and I, we would go to Sunday school every Sunday. And uh, when we got around 12, we would then stay over for, for church. Prior to uh, that, you know, you know, we would just go to Sunday school. I was active in the Sunday school to the point that uh, the, the superintendent made me his assistant, called me assistant superintendent. And I'd, I had taken a few little piano lessons, and I was putting a couple little church songs together, and they let me play uh, some accompaniments to, to some of the things that the little choir would sing. So that's what, that was what my faith was. But go ahead with the rest of the questions. Okay. And 
you also said that uh, you were subliminally, uh, I mean, you said you've seen Al-Islam. I mean, you, you mentioned that you've seen, uh, you don't know if they're Ahmadiyya's, or you, uh, remember you saying that you visited a family at the Bays. Uh, there were more signs. Moorish Americans. Americans. Okay, but I'm almost sure they're Moorish Americans. Okay, so when you, I mean, when you seen this, were they? I mean, how were they practicing? Were they making salat? I mean, were they fasting? Uh, were they? I mean, did you see the Quran? I mean, what I did you actually see? What did I you actually Quran, see? But let me tell you what I saw as a as a child. And then it's not what was there. It's what I what I saw. I saw this great big book. <laughs> I mean, he had a big, big. It looked like one of those big. Uh, you, you see the dictionary that you go when you go to the library that sits on the reference table. He had a Quran that looked like that. At least as a child, that's how it appeared to me. Okay, and he had this mm-hmm. big. And he had uh, he, he he. I had a beard, which was different at the time, and. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they 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 had a way that the youngsters and I didn't see Mr. Bay do this, but the, but the young ones that I went to school with they they wouldn't cut their hair, they wouldn't cut their hair, and they they wouldn't eat no meat, you know, they ate mm-hmm. fish, okay, they ate mm-hmm. fish, and they wouldn't cut their hair, and they all of them took on the name Bay, we called it Bay, but as I got older right. and learned Arabic, we realized that's Biyah, you know. But we called them the Bay families, you know. Right. So I'm assuming these are African Africans. These are African Americans who, who who lived in in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. All African American. Okay. But I mean, I'm talking about in uh, African American, African American, not not from over across the pond, right here in the U.S. Right. Okay. So there were African there were African Americans all were practicing, you know, Islam. Maybe maybe not in the nation of Islam, but they were also practicing Islam. It's, well, some type of a, Islam. Yes, they there. There was a you had Ahmadiyyas in the in Pittsburgh, you had the Moorish Americans in Pittsburgh, and then when Minister Robert, uh, uh, and by the way, let me say this about Minister Rob, uh, Robert, he was the one when Malcolm came out of jail. That's who Malcolm stayed with when he came out of jail. So, so he came to Pittsburgh. He was assigned from Detroit to come to Pittsburgh to take over Temple Number Twenty Two. And what year was this? What year was this, brother man? Nineteen fifty-six. Nineteen fifty. Okay. So, what? How did the people uh, in in during fifty-six, uh, fifty-five, fifty-six, or even earlier, how did they did did they perceive the nation of Islam? Did you see the nation of Islam early before fifty-six? And if you didn't, and when you finally got influenced while I'm in the fifty-six, how did the rest of the black people in that time? Deal with the Nation of Islam uh, uh, members. Well, the the preachers were scared to death of it. They were scared to death of it, and uh, in fact, I went to my preacher because I was so active in the church. You know, I couldn't just do an about face. I mean, I I'm thinking my mindset, and this is where where my mind was at, at that time. I'm thinking, oh wow. If they only knew, they would they would be so happy, you know. And uh, they just don't know. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go tell the preacher, you know, of this beautiful uh, group of people and what they're doing and what they're saying. And I got the biggest shock of my life, you know, when I got there. You know, the minister, the reverend, I mean, he, 
he was stern faced, you know, and he told me he gave me the key to the parsonage. No, pardon me. I was at, at the parsonage. He gave me the key to the church and told me to go over and they had just put in on a on up in a balcony, they put in a prayer room up there. He told me, "You go to the prayer room." And uh and then you come back when you when you're ready, you know. So I went up there and I sat around, I sat around, I sat around, and I sat around, you know. And then I guess in about an hour or a little more maybe, I came back and gave him the keys. And we didn't have any conversation, you know, but he he was threatened by it, as mm-hmm. most ministers are even to today. They're threatened by it because they don't understand it. And they uh, they see Islam as counter to what they believe, and they they it's sad that uh, in, in especially even now in Indianapolis, they uh, <clears throat> the Caucasian people will take a uh, intelligent look at it. They are more involved in the interface and in the uh, efforts to try and work collectively together, but. The African American uh, uh, Christian people are afraid to death of Islam, scared to death. Now, how did your how did your family, your immediate family, take uh, uh, issue, or did they take issue with you uh, starting to uh, be being pulled to the religion of, of Al Islam, or at least how it was being practiced at that time, you know, in America during the fifties? My mother. Keep in mind now, at the time that I'm getting exposed to Islam, I'm also getting exposed to young girls. I'm getting exposed to uh, the fast life in the streets. I'm getting exposed to to uh, all kinds of slick stuff. I had a decent pool game. I loved to play cards and, and uh, things like that. So um, my mother wasn't pleased with that at all. And... Um, because she was a, a church woman, and uh, the FBI came first to my neighbors. They went to my neighbors and uh, inquired about me. Do you know Muhammad? Do you know Clark Moore? And uh, well, who are you? You know, here's a white man knocking on a door, dressed in a three-piece suit and boat. Uh, excuse me, and a straight tie on and clean-shaven. And he's uh, asking, coming there, you know, and they walk with authority anyhow. And, uh, you know, Clark Moore and uh, the Davis family, yeah, we we, we know him. And he brings out his bad FBI, John so-and-so. Oh, my God. I mean, so now he's shaking in his boots, okay? So Mm -hmm. they did that to a few of the neighbors. And one of them told my mother what they, they had done, you know. And they came to her, you know. Your son has been it's been reported to us that your son is involved with the black Muslims, you know. She said, all praise be to God, you know. I mean, she was happy. I mean, she may not have been those exact words, but she was happy because she knew that the discipline that she had seen just with the young FOI in the streets, selling the Pittsburgh Courier and conducting themselves and how they dressed and how they carried themselves. And she she was thinking that's a much better way for me to be going than to be hanging out in the pool room 24-7, shooting pool and playing 
uh, Georgia skin and and and, and uh, craps and things like that. So my mother, she, you know, she, she never challenged it. Never challenged it. In fact, you know, I still can remember to, just like it was yesterday. You know, where she, <clears throat> I was sitting in the church, and she said it's time for you to go up and play for the choir to come in. I told her not this Sunday, mom. I'd left, and I I hadn't been back as a member of the church, but every time I do go back to Pittsburgh, I attend the church, I send donations to the church, and I, I, I would help the church in a big way if I had more ways of helping because it was a foundation for me, and a lot of my friends uh, were there and are still there. Well, I, I, have, I have another question. Uh, go right ahead. It has to be something in Christianity I mean, in your faith, before you became a Muslim, uh, was there anything that you did not understand? Was something that it had to, you know, something in Christianity had to lead you to Islam? What made you say, okay, this is the truth, this is the way? What, I mean, as I know you, you were raised as a Christian, you know, uh, but it had to have been something in Christianity, or, or it might not. Or could this be something in Islam that said, hey, this is the truth? What was that that well, leads you most, to Islam? One of the most beautiful things that I think that, that, that impressed me, everyone may not go this way, but I have always been a very outspoken person. I'm a very inquisitive person. I'm a very curious person. I... Uh, ask questions, I research, I uh, love dialogue and discussion and debate, as long as it's intelligent and civil. And uh, this the church did not permit. That's one of the things I loved so much about the Sunday school convention that I was a part of when I attended Sunday school. Of course, we only did that uh, uh, once a year for about three or four days the convention would last. But after that, we're back to the to the sit down, listen, and don't don't ask questions. You know, the churches operated in in a sort of a totalitarian way, while the Sunday school operated in a more liberal way, where you could have questions and discussion on different things. But even to that degree, it was limited because of we would go to we would arrive at Sunday school at nine forty five. We had to be finished by. Five or ten to eleven, because now the churches come come in and use the same facility that we were using for Sunday school, and we had to be out of there. And even if we didn't have to, they didn't use it, they weren't going to let us continue on with something that was competitive with what they were doing. So the, one of the things that I'm saying is that uh, my great interest was sparked in Islam by the rational uh, nature of it, the fact that it was not conflicting with nature and the fact that you know if you had questions at the temple you could ask the questions and you could have discussion and 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 if the things that they were pointing out made sense you know they they pointed out i mean they pointed out some very key issues you know because one of the brothers they come to me and told me say uh here's a brother you know he's younger than me and you know Back in those days, you know, you think if he guy's younger than you, he can't know more than me. You know, after all, I'm in the I'm in the eighth grade, and he's only in the seventh grade. You know, sixth grade. You know, so I have to be automatically smarter than him, right? 
And uh, so <laughs> he came to me and told me, he said, man, you don't even know who you are. I said, what do you mean I don't know who I am? You don't know your name? I said, I know myself. What is your name? And I told him, Clark Moore. And he laughed. He said, listen to this nigga, would you? That's Clark Moore. Well, have you ever seen any Clark Moore as an African? I said, I mean, he froze me. I mean, I mean, he handled me like a yo-yo on a string, you know. <laughs> and uh, when he finished with me, I mean, I, I left, but I didn't rest comfortable that night. I mean, I tossed and I turned, and I wrestled with what he had told me. And so uh, one of my friends who had become uh, united with uh, the nation, he took me out to the, to, to the temple meeting out there <coughs> in the um, other side of town where they were meeting. And uh, I listened to the minister, and uh, the more I listened, the sure I, g- I was that this was for me. This was for me. And the only dilemma I had at the time was not the issue of, the, of what the nation represented. It was what I had got myself involved with in terms of the past life and the things that I knew were not going to be toler- tolerated in the nation of Islam. Imam Sadiq, let me uh, go back uh, uh, and reflect here. You said the Pittsburgh Courier. That was, um, I guess, the, where the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's uh, messages were coming out. Was that a weekly uh, article? Weekly. Or was that it was weekly? Weekly every and Thursday. Every Thursday. And yes. um, did that did that have a, a, a large readership? Pittsburgh Courier, the Pittsburgh Courier was perhaps the the vanguard of African American uh, journalism and periodicals at the time. It had a tremendous readership. In fact, it was the only way that we, who were an African American community, got our information because we did not. Uh, it was only a very select few who had. Uh, you know, some type of connection with the with the Caucasian papers. We had two other papers. One was called the Sun Te- Sun Telegraph, and the other was called the Post Gazette. And uh, those two papers, I mean, though we would periodically get those, but the great majority of the African American people, they ate and drank and 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 made decisions based on what the Pittsburgh Courier said. You know, so all the way so down the nation of Islam. So the Nation of Islam in 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 this early fifties did not have publications coming out in None. Chicago. None. Just they they may have had like the Honorable Elijah Muhammad put out some little small pamphlets and booklets that periodically would come out, but there was no consistency to those, and they would come out only for special occasions, most of the time for conventions and things like that. But the only consistent weekly uh, involvement for finding out what was going on in the nation of Islam. Well, there was two things, pardon me. One was the Pittsburgh Courier, and the other was the syndicated broadcast that uh, was uh, taped in Chicago and sent around to to the uh, radio stations that would carry it. Now, and I put it that way because uh, I can still hear see my friend Donald talking about, come on, man, I want you to listen to the messenger, I want you to listen to the messenger. And uh, we would have to turn the radio on, and, I mean, you had to go all the way down the dial, past all the static and the 
crickling and crackling and <laughs> and then you get to hear greetings. This is Elijah Muhammad, the preacher of freedom, justice, and equality to the lost found members of the nation of Islam in the wilderness of North America. Then you get crackle, 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 crackle. You have to listen to them. You have to put your ear down to the radio. I mean, it was a test. It was a test. wasn't any clear <laughs> listening. And you and so I'm sitting there listening the best I could. And then, then he had a he had one thing. He had like a speech impediment where he didn't speak with the fancy uh, type of verbiage that we hear coming from our educated class. And he spoke uh, in broken language and 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 in a different, total different way than you were used to. And so you had to be disciplined to even try to listen to the station. So those are the two things that were going on in the major cities around the country was the Pittsburgh Courier and also the uh, uh, weekly broadcast of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad on those stations or that station that would carry it in your city, which was always something that sounded like it was coming out for, coming in from Mars somewhere. So if if this is good, I didn't know that you raised something here. So if he had this this speech impediment, or let's just say broken uh, English here, uh, you know, and we know from the educational situation in America in the 20s and 30s and 40s, and particularly in the Deep South, where the Honorable Elijah Muhammad come, came from in Georgia, um, what do you think influenced uh, individuals like yourself? Still come and listen to this individual. What 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 made me listen? And I wasn't totally completely pleased because I couldn't. It was it was it was such a challenge to to hear it and and to sit there and and it, it, you have to understand. I mean, it's just like picking up one of those stations. Like you can go to your radio and turn it, and and you hear some a station coming in from maybe coming in from Canada or coming in from someplace and it, and it comes and goes and goes. That's what we had to go through. So that was a challenge. But when mm-hmm. we, I went to the temple and the, the ministers would take and teach about what he was saying. And they were very, very charismatic. Most of the ministers were and, and very clever in their approach. And plus you had this, <laughs> you had this blackboard in front of you that you walk in, you get there ahead of time, and uh, the meeting started promptly at two o'clock. And you walk in, and you're, you're sitting there, and you all you all, it's, it's quiet, and the sisters on one side, brothers on the other side, and uh, you don't you're not talking. There's no you don't just take a seat anywhere you want. They they seat you and tell you how to seat, and you were checked, you were searched before you came in there. And meanwhile, you got this smell of food come to your nose as to go feed you afterwards, you know. And uh, and so you're going through that, and and meanwhile you're looking at this blackboard in front of you with this big question: Which one will survive the war of Armageddon? You know, and you're trying to figure which one will survive the war of Armageddon. What the hell is the war of Armageddon? And never and who's fighting it? You know. But <laughs> so how am I going to figure out who's going to survive it? I don't even know about it, what it is, or who's fighting it, or what? You know. And then on one side, on one side you got an American flag, and on the other side you got a, a, a star and a crescent. And on the side under the American flag, you got a black man hanging from a noose, you know. 
and on the other side, and plus a cross over there, and on the other side, you got freedom, justice, and equality, and you're, you're sitting there looking at this, and, and meanwhile, all these questions are popping in your mind, and so you're 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 busy, you're at work trying to resolve certain riddles in your mind, then all of a sudden at 2 o'clock sharp, you hear the, and, you, and then you see somebody come walking, up. Two, two brothers come, they stop, boom, cut the corner, go. One comes from one way, one comes the other way, then all of a sudden they turn around, salute, sit down, boom. You say, what the hell was that? You know, what's, what's going on? Who are they? <laughs> so now, this, this, I guess it's like a, 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 a it's theater, you know. And so you're watching this, then you hardly can get uh, a, a uh, you know, in, involved with trying to deal with that. Then down the down the, down the side comes another brother with carrying two books most of the time. Carries the Quran and a Bible, and sets the Quran and, and some notes that he has, and some and sets it sets it on one side, Quran on one side and, and the notes. Uh, excuse me, and the Bible on the other side. And then another brother comes and sits down behind him. So the first brother. All right, when the, smile, when, the, when the minister comes forward, he's going to tell you this, brother, and I want you to So he's, he's, he's done with doing what they call opening up for the minister. So mm-hmm. now you, you, you're busy trying to figure that. And then, oh, excuse me, then the minister, he does, he comes in afterwards, I'm sorry. And so the minister comes in, <clears throat> and then he begins to teach you, and he begins to take you through how you've been bamboozled and tricked and how you've been a slave and how you don't know who you are, don't know your name, you've lost your culture, your identity. And I mean, and, and I mean, and then meanwhile, the, the sort of move you along, you hear this chorus behind, that's right, pick them up, teach brother minister, that's right, tell them like it is, you know, so you hear this coming behind you. And that's they call that bearing witness, and so now you sitting there, and so you got all this drama going on, you know. And meanwhile, the sisters have come in; they're all dressed in, uh, looking like angels almost, and uh, and and, and uh, these shiny, like almost look like uh, silk white robes, and they're, they're sitting over there. And the brothers are look like they can shine. Some of them <laughs> they, 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 they clean shaven, both tied, dressed well. Face bright and clear, eyes clear, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so all this is going on, and you, you're busy trying to digest and understand all this. And meanwhile, after they go through the, the the lecture, then he asks, "How many, how many in here believe what they heard to be true?" You know. And uh, of course, I mean, you, you raise your hand. Those who believe this is what they heard to be true. How many willing to stand up for themselves? They're gonna sit around and let the white man tell them, "No, you can't do that with those black people." And so you on the couple brothers jumped to their feet, you know, and said, All right, those of you who believe that it is true and then I want you to follow this brother right here and, and he's gonna give you some information how you can get more information on, on, on this truth that we're teaching here. So, you know, in each case I would go rise up, raise my hand and then sit back down. I was I w I wasn't ready to go get no paper, okay? And so that's basically what went on at all the temple meetings and and that's what I experienced in Pittsburgh and then I tr- started traveling around the east coast. Experienced in Pittsburgh, experienced in Washington D.C., experienced in uh, Philadelphia, experienced in New York City. Go ahead. Now, when did you go to? When did you go to? Uh, what year did you first go to Washington D.C., New York City, and Philadelphia? Was that still in the fifties? No, I went to New York. I went to 
D.C. in the early 60s, 61, 62, 63, like that. Okay, I, I, and 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 the and the type of pretty much the, the type of the same format was being uh, carried on in each and all of those different temples identical. that you visited. Identical. identical. Okay, and and did and they did have the Quran, but they didn't really teach from the Quran. That's, I didn't never hear you say the Quran. They set the Quran down and never opened it. Never opened it. Okay. And okay. In fact, ninety nine point nine percent of everything that was done was biblical referenced. Okay, biblical reference, and and um, and I don't want to get into it tonight because we're gonna have a a continuing show for all our listeners out here out there that may be listening at this time. Um, we're gonna do a series of, of, of inside looking out on Black Muslim to Muslim America and uh, Muslim American. But let me just put this out here uh, right now, and you don't have to get into it. And in debt because we're going to talk about this further. But were were you aware of Malik Shabazz, Elhard Shabazz, known uh, commonly as Malcolm X? Were you aware of him at the time in the fifties, or or did he come on in, in the early sixties? Now Malcolm, now I learned about Malcolm early on in the fifties. Uh, I learned about him in the fifties. In fact, <laughs> in fact, uh, the record, the, the first record that was put out. On Malcolm called from the grassroots, from the grassroots. I don't know if some of you might remember that where he talks about the march on Washington and everything else. You know, um, well, I won't try and get into all of it now, but we actually broke that record because the record was Malcolm had that. That was in the 60s, though. Malcolm had been uh, gotten in trouble with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad at the time, and uh, we were able to <clears throat> get that record into the public when it was being uh, censored and pulled out of existence by the Jewish community at the time. Okay. Well, we're going to get to that later on in, in, as we do this series. This is a series that we're trying to do here. But uh, but you, but he, Malcolm was active in the community in, in the, in yeah. between oh, 56 Malcolm and... Yeah, Malcolm was, and see, that's another saving grace there, that <clears throat> even though the Honorable Elijah Muhammad... Uh, was not that eloquent type of a charismatic speaker. He, he had he was wise enough to know how to use those who did have talents and and skill, such as Malcolm and many of his other ministers, <clears throat> and they did a tremendous job reaching the people. There were a lot of charismatic brothers out there. Malcolm was one of the wisest and and uh, most uh, effective ministers. And I just want to say this, it might be good, I don't know if you have any people who are, are, are trying to call in or anything like that, I wouldn't hesitate to take any questions from them, or you could take questions and see what, where I might have been something I could have said or should have said or they think that they wanted to ask. I don't have a problem with that. Well, if anyone wants to call in, they can call at 646-668-8368. That's 646-668-8368. I was going to try to leave the last 30 minutes if someone wanted to call in, but don't we'll, eventually someone's going to ask you some questions on this, so we won't have to worry about that. But um, in in the 50s and late 50s, uh, what kind of structure, uh, maybe you weren't aware of it because I think you mentioned you were kind of not totally committed, but did you know any about anything about the hierarchy structure 
in the nation of Islam in the 50s. In other words, I, I, you know, we that. had we had honorable Elijah Muhammad, and then I mean, we know we had our captains and and our ministers. I, I mean, kind of explain kind of how that went. Well, first of all, I when you you know I was in the ranks, you know, I was I was a foot soldier, and uh, I knew of our uh, the hierarchy and how it existed. I knew the way the each temple was designed. It was the minister, the captain, and the secretary were the the the, the flow of command. And the minister, it, uh, he would oversee the, um, the the entire temple. The captain would train the men, and the secretary would be the keeper of the records. And the sister captain would also work along with the brother captain. She would train the sisters. And um, when, when or where there was a school, they had the, the sister directress or the sister director of the schools, and um, that's how the the uh, leadership of the communities went across the country. Now, all but New York, <laughs> New York functioned real different, especially in the '70s, because um, where the minister was the uh, he was actually the overseer of the entire community. In New York, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, he especially after uh, the rise and fall of Malcolm, he didn't it didn't function quite like that, you know. He he let each one of those persons function in a sub somewhat autonomous way, and somewhat of an autonomous way, and each one of them having a uh, ability to report to his. Uh, superior officer in Chicago, such as like the captain would be guided by supreme captain, the secretary would be guided by the national secretary, and the minister himself would in most instances go out and and see or get instructions from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad or one of his assistant ministers. I see. Okay, well, this is a, a new African radio broadcast show here we have on the line imam muhammad sadiq long-term pioneer muslim muslim american some say black muslim in here in the united states of america uh been in islam associated with the religion of islam for almost 60 years and as he stated earlier maybe even longer as a young child being influenced by Mo uh, moorish americans so we have him on the line here today, also with our special host, uh, Yasin Shahid. Brother, man, we're going to go to a uh, station break, give you a break. We're going to come back in a few minutes. So everybody just stay tuned, and we'll we'll come right back in just uh, a minute. Yeah, this is Donald San Antonio. We gave her a bath, and we started rubbing her down with, um, with the XLSO, and she has had complete, complete moisture in her skin ever since. Excel Nutraceuticals All Natural Base SO has been scientifically developed for the management of eczema and psoriasis. For more information, go to xcel-n.com. My name is uh, Dr. Karen Holly, and I am the senior pastor at Lifeway Church, and I'm also a psychological therapist. My grandson, Christian Turner, and he uses SO, and he has eczema, and so it's just worked wonderfully for him. Tried bump stop. I've tried all kind of stuff. <laughs> By my skin, you would never believe. Uh, people don't believe anymore that I 
used to have hair bumps except my friends. It cleared it up. No more dry patches, even the, the patches that would come around. Juceuticals, all natural products. Call today at 1-800-977-3981. I actually brought it for my daughters. They, and my daughters really, my their hair has gotten so much thicker. It's gotten longer. And they feel, it's like they had a ball, like ball spots on the side head but um ever since uh, we've been using it they no more the hair has actually grown excel nutraceuticals all natural base hgs has been scientifically developed for the control of eczema of the scalp and hair regrowth for more information go to www.xcel-n.com yes hi my name is carmen about a year ago i had ordered three of the jars of the xl hgs and i'm here to tell you Oh, it really, really worked. It stopped my hair from thinning out. My hair is just beautiful, and I'm just so very well pleased. Nutraceuticals, all natural products. Call today at 1-800-977-3981. The new African broadcast is sponsored by XL Nutraceuticals. XL Nutraceuticals produces and manufactures all natural products that help promote clear skin and healthy hair growth. Visit XL Nutraceuticals at www.xcel-n.com or call 1-800-977-3981. And now, back to the new African broadcast.
I have also welcome back to the show. We have on the line here Imam Muhammad Sadiq. He's going to tell us more about his life experiences. We titled this From the Inside Looking Out, Black Muslim to Muslim American, 1956 to the Present. I also have as a co-host tonight, Yassin Shahid. Brother Imam, Assalamu alaikum, and welcome back to the show. And uh, can you, you guys hear me now? Well, alaikum, assalam. I can hear you loud and clear. Yes, sir. Well, Thank you. Alhamdulillah. I can hear you. Brother Yassin, you have any questions you want to pick up on when we left off that? <laughs> Yeah, you know what? Uh, I actually I do. Um, I want to kind of go back a little bit. The question I have is, well, you know, let me first say this. I'm 30 years old. I was born into Al Islam, uh, and me being born, you know, 1985, the nation of Islam that we see today uh, is not the same nation of Islam back when it first started, okay? And I think there's a lack of knowledge or well, uh, understanding as well and information out there that a lot of people don't really know what is the, the real nation of Islam and its objectives. And one thing I want to say is let's talk about Master Farah Muhammad. Uh, I, I want to know when... Was he really present? Uh, what was his ethnicity? When did he come to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad? And I think we should kind of project this out to the our listeners who don't really know about Master Farah Muhammad. Okay, let's take one at a time, and you. I'm gonna take them as you put it out there. I'm gonna take them one at a time, and you can. Each time after I ask one, you can go back, go to the next one. As far okay. as <clears throat> the nation of Islam today and the nation of Islam yesterday, no disrespect to the outstanding and excellent work that Minister Farrakhan has done and is doing, but you can you can call what he's doing the nation of Islam. But according to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, work that he did end it when he left. He said he had no successors. No one, one gonna be no successors coming after him. And uh, <clears throat> and so therefore, I mean, it's you. You hear. In fact, if you if you if you uh, go online, you'll find the new nation of Islam, the true nation of Islam. You'll find a whole lot of other people who uh, who are carrying that using that name. And no one can tell them they can't use it. But by the same token, by the same token, they cannot. They're they're more or less mimicking the real nation of Islam. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's what they want to do. But we have to be very honest and forthright about the reality of that. That's not the nation of Islam. That's uh, an imitation. In, in a with a positive uh, uh, effort. I don't mean invitation negatively, but I'm simply saying it's not the nation of Islam. Uh, the nation of Islam was what existed at the time of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, 
And after Dr. Elijah Muhammad left, that was it. There's no, there's no, you know, bringing it back or taking it to the next level. What he did, he did it, and it ended when he left. So, you know, and that's not to put down the sincerity of the brothers in the FOI or the sincerity of the sisters in the MGT or the excellent work of Minister Farrakhan. This is not meant as a negative comment. I'm just quoting what the Honorable Elijah Muhammad said. Honorable Elijah Muhammad said he had no successor. They were at, people asked him, well, what, what happens after you? He said, in one interview, he said, uh, my work, or the Nation of Islam, goes to the grave with me. That's on one occasion. Then he said they tried to get him to say about a successor. He said, there's no need for a successor. And they wanted, he said, you know, God gave him this. And God wasn't confused. And that's how he saw it. And and if you take a look at it, you, there's never been any successors to any prophetic types. Whatever the prophetic type did, that was his work. And whatever came after him, that was an independent work, but it, it wasn't an extension of the first one. It was it was his work. I know some will say, well, what about Moses and Aaron? That's a totally different ball game, and and that and that that'll take a little time. But uh, trust me. It ended when the Honorable Elijah Muhammad passed away. And that's not to demean or disrespect the sincerity of the young brothers who have taken on all of the old names that we had and all of the old identities and even the uniforms and the dress and everything. But, you know, as Malcolm put it, and he put it very wisely, just because a cat has biscuits in the oven, just because a cat has kittens in the oven, that don't make them biscuits. And I'm simply saying that you can take on any name you want and dress the way you want, but that's not the nation of Islam. You can't. You have one nation of Islam, and that's the one that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was moved by Almighty God to establish. And after that, you have many wannabes and many people who want to mimic that, and that there's nothing wrong with that if that's what they want to do, but they have to be very... When questions like this come, they can't be offended because it's not meant to be offensive. But that's not the nation of Islam. Right. Okay. Now you had a couple of okay. He brought up a question about Farad Muhammad and uh, Elijah Muhammad and the uh, coming, uh, you know, the the interaction between. I think that's what he was. When did Farad interact with Elijah and uh, Elijah and and I guess the mission that he. Did he put him on a mission or what? Uh, well, first of all, I think he asked about where he was from or something like that. You know. Yeah. yeah what where, was from? Yeah. Where uh, was where was he from? I mean, Farad uh, Muhammad said Farad Muhammad was from India. From okay. India. You know, keep in mind, you know, in per- perhaps the part of India that is now Pakistan, you know, but mm-hmm. it, it was not petitioned at the time that he came. Mm-hmm. Mission took place, I think, in the 40s or something like that, and uh, he came in the 30s. So then his coming on July the 4th, again, Imam Warthi Muhammad said, that is probably more symbolic than real, you know, and um, meaning that the symbolism of what July the 4th, which just means a, a, a declaration at the time of celebrating that 
the freedom of this country. And so that's where the big meaning of July the 4th is. And uh, <clears throat> Farad Muhammad uh, was, according to Imam Wadisuddin Muhammad, a very fair-complected, almost Caucasian-looking person uh, of Indian an ancestry. And uh, he he came and uh, he uh, began uh, working using some of the uh, strategies, psychologies of some earlier um, people who, who were trying to liberate African-American people. Uh, you Before Farad even got it started, you had people like Father Divine, Daddy Grace, Noble Drew Ali, uh, and, uh, you know, Marcus Garvey, and, and others, you know. And uh, so he he put together a hodgepodge of, of some of their teachings initially, you know. Even if you, we can go back and we can see some of the <clears throat> pictures of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad in the early days dressed in the uh, <clears throat> Moorish American Moroccan fez, which was definitely taken from them, though some people try to carry it the next step, next level, saying that Honorable Elijah Muhammad was once a part of the Moorish Americans, and that's not true. That's not accurate. Honorable Elijah Muhammad's entree into this whole idea of redemption of his people was all done in the nation of Islam. His dress may have reflected what the Moorish Americans were about in Akhmadiyas and things like that, but he was not a Moorish American or Akhmadi or anything like that. And so Farad Muhammad, he, uh, he had a strategy and he had a psychology that he was going to use to try and awaken the uh, what he called the lost found nation of Islam, and uh, he he came with that and he uh, began teaching people why he was peddling silks and different materials at the knocking on doors, selling them a very reasonable price, and mainly just to get the uh, have a, a legitimate justification for coming to their door, because back then, <clears throat> um, especially African American people, we we weren't even allowed <laughs> to go downtown and try on clothes. White folks could do that, but African Americans could. We couldn't even try to clothes on. So, and what I'm leading to is that uh, much our clothing in many instances was was made. My my grandmother was a seamstress. My mother was a seamstress. <laughs> Every, it, you know, we we wore what you call uh, homemade clothes in many instances. So his knocking on doors selling uh, linens and silks and things like that, it at a very reasonable price captured the attention of the uh, people. And while they were <clears throat> making decisions as to what they were going to do, buy it or not buy it or looking at it, he would drop a seed here and a seed there and an idea here and an idea there and get interesting conversations going to the point where they said, hey, why don't we, you know, different people would, you know, have that same experience. So they said, why don't we just get a little storefront and sit down and, 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 and just share some of these things so that they begin to have those discussions in the community. And through that involvement came the, uh, um, the, you know, basic foundation of what be then became the lost foundation of Islam.
That's interesting. So for us, so I guess in the 30s and the 40s to have nice uh, clothing made out of silk uh, as opposed to just making it out of, you know, maybe some, I don't know, other material, cotton or whatever, was a good selling point and gave him opportunity. It looked like it was a pretty good strategy. It gave him opportunity to come in people's houses or at least get into their, you know, their avenue and be able to, you know, talk about some of the things he was trying to to relate oh, yeah. to the, uh, yes. And he, he, he most likely sold different types of materials, but, I mean, silk is some of the things that he sold, but I think he might have sold cotton materials and, you know, different kinds of materials that they had. <laughs> But but the main point was that that was the as we were taught, and all of this we learned in the history of, in our FOI classes, and in, uh, in the FOI for those who are not familiar with those terms, fruit of Islam, and I use the term MGT, Muslim Girls Training, and in fact the Muslim Girls Training they they have two names MGT GCC, Muslim Girls Training and General Civilization Class, so. So you had those two classes, the FOI class, which was the men, and all the men, regardless of what age, male, had to join the FOIs, and all the women had to join the MGT GCC. And so, um, and and these classes were, they're excellent. They're excellent classes. You were, they would tell you to teach the woman how to be uh, a refined woman, how to and teach the man how to be a responsible and and uh, refine uh, husband, father, leader in his family, and uh, and to give some basic etiquette and hygiene, teach us how to clean and be clean, teach us how to conduct our homes and to rear our children. And so these are some wonderful things that went on in the nation of Islam and are going on now, as I understand, with Minister Farcon's community, which just makes me say that these are good things. It's not bad. But we have to be honest about what it represents. Is it is it the nation of Islam continuation with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad did? No, it isn't. But is it bad? No, it isn't. It's a very good some very good things he is doing and has done. Okay, you listening to Imam Muhammad Sadiq, a long time pioneer in the American Muslim mission effort here. Imam Muhammad Sadiq, I wanted to Go back now, well, and uh, we didn't. Brother, I'm sorry, Brother Shahid. I didn't want to kind of jump off topic. Uh, I got one more question. Uh, with Far Muhammad, did he come to? Well, did he just go to Elijah Muhammad, or were there any any more people uh, at the time? Did he uh, try to uh, teach? The okay. message where he was trying to bring. Was there any more people besides Elijah Muhammad? We know Elijah Back Muhammad. Back the other was way around. It. Elijah Muhammad was one of the many. Okay. There were many people. Elijah Muhammad, in many instances, was Johnny Come Lately. He wasn't in the. He wasn't in the vanguard of the people who heard Farad Muhammad. Farad Muhammad had been talking and teaching at the various uh, homes and storefronts and facilities that they had. Uh, rented to do that and Sister Clara Muhammad the wife of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad one of her friends had told her about this man he's in the city of Detroit and uh, and probably Hamtramck might be right right on the outskirts and uh, and 
her girlfriend or friend told her, child, you need to hear this man. You need to hear uh, uh, the, 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 the minister or whatever they called him, you know. And so uh, she went and she listened. And when she listened, she was so impressed. And the first thing that came to her mind, the first thing that came to her mind was, this can help my husband. Now, what do, what do I mean by that? Imam Wadisadi Muhammad teaches us, and people think that he's being disrespectful to his father because he tells us the history of how it really went. But he loved his father, and he's never been disrespectful to his mother or his father. But he said Honorable Elijah Muhammad had an alcohol problem initially. And it was not uncommon to see Sister Clara Muhammad, you know, sort of helping him home after having, you know, overdrank or things like that. And that's a part of the history. But, and she was looking for some kind of way to help him break some of those habits and to, you know, regain his, his stability because he came from down south and, you know, during the Depression time there wasn't great opportunities for anybody, you know, though he worked when he could work and definitely wasn't just sitting around bumming, but he did what many of the men did, and that was, you know, drink wine and different things like that. But uh, so when she heard this, first thing that came to her mind, this can help my husband. Because she heard it before he heard it. So she went to her husband and asked him, would he go with her to the meeting? And I don't know how long it took her to convince him, but he did go. And I don't know how many times he went before the the he he had a chance to to uh, interact with uh, Farad Muhammad, uh, minister. Imam Warthi Muhammad says he can't call him master. They call him master Farad Muhammad. Says he can't call him that. That name is not for a proper. But we don't want to disrespect him either. So we'll call him Professor Farad out of respect because we're not trying to be disrespectful. And uh, so she said, this can help my husband. And so according to some of the history, now how accurate this is, I don't know, but I'll share with you what has been shared and taught at many of the temples. And that is that at, at the end of the meeting, this particular meeting, that he would stand at the door somewhat like the preacher does when you finish and people would go out and shake their hand and greet him and thank him for coming, you know. And uh, it is reported and this could be a little uh, yeast in in the bread, but it's reported that as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was walking out, he shook his hand and he said, uh, supposed to have said, I know who you are, you know. And uh, allegedly, it's reported that he allegedly responded, you know, uh, in a way we're like, don't tell nobody. Let's just keep it to ourselves, you know, something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Um, because at the time, his the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's uh, brother, I think it was his brother, Kalat, Kalat, who was, uh, you know, they, they, they were involved ahead of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. 
In fact, they had positions. And Elijah Muhammad wasn't, he was called Kareem. His name wasn't, he wasn't called Elijah, they called him Kareem. His, his, his family name was Kareem. And uh, so with that, you know, uh, he he continued to stay with them for two and a half, whatever, or three years, whatever. And um, then he reported to, reported to Elijah that he was leaving. And he never technically or clearly assigned the Honorable Elijah Muhammad the job, but he he did say, hear Kareem, hear Kareem. That's that's the way he put it, hear Kareem. And so um, that set the stage for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad to to, uh, begin to pursue the leadership, and it also set off a lot of jealousies and a lot of anger, and that's why he had to flee from Detroit and began to get on the road because it was even uh, rumored that his uh, brother, I think, I think Kalat was his brother. If not, he was his uncle or whatever. But whatever it was, he had to come face-to-face with one of either Kalat or one of the uh, members, early members, who wanted to kill him. And, uh, and he walked right past him and just kept on going. But uh, he had to run for his life. And so he he was traveling throughout the country, and uh, in that light, you know, that's how he began establishing the various temples, where he went and would drop seeds and get the people interested and begin to grow this. But he wasn't hands down accepted as the leader. There was a little power struggle there, and that's how the power struggle went. I see. Interesting. So, um, so ultimately, eventually, the the leadership, uh, I guess, uh, headquarters wound up in Chicago, and yeah. um, and kind of how did that that kind of how when that how long did it take for Chicago to become, I guess, the headquarters? Now that I don't know, because I know after he. And, and fleeing for his life and getting out of Detroit, you know, he moved his family to Chicago, I think, because of the environment, as I understood it. And, um, you know, they had, they, you know, they had very modest residencies, residences where he stayed until um, the community grew enough to uh, sponsor him into a more uh, appropriate type residence for a leader of the community. And, um, you know, he um, would work right in the butcher shops. We would have little shops, and he would uh, say he went to the slaughterhouse and got a copy of uh, a a butcher's sheet shows you how, you know, shows a cow and how, each section is this is the sirloin, this is the rib steak, this is the round steak, and all of that. And he, through his teaching himself, he became actually like a butcher. And he would mm-hmm. cut the meat and put the meat in the display case that they had a little store or something like that. And this became one of the businesses in the community, one of the early businesses in the community. And then they had uh, barbers who had barber shops and 
cleaners and things like that. So early on, that's how that's how it all began. And he, over time, uh, the community grew. And he, of course, he was uh, arrested twice that I know of. And one was for contributing to the delinquency of a juvenile, which is just sort of a a uh, charge way of saying he refused to let his children enroll into the public schools. And that was the first arrest. And the second arrest was he refused to uh, register with the draft, even though he was above draft age. So legitimately, I, I'm i of the mindset we should go back and get a pardon for him because right. that, was un- that was unfair of what they did. You know, and that's that's been on my mind for a long while, but uh, I'll I'll leave that alone for a while. You know, but yes, go ahead. Any other questions on that? Well, and how many kids did he have? I think he had seven. By by Sister Clara Muhammad. Okay. Seven children by Sister Clara Muhammad. And Iman Waters. No, I'm pardon me. Pardon me. No, no, no. Eight by Sister Clara Muhammad. And uh, he had two girls and five uh, and six boys. And uh, the Honorable Elijah, Muhammad, I mean, excuse me, Imam Warasudi Muhammad was the seventh child. And Akbar, his younger brother, was the eighth child. And uh, Emmanuel, of course, was the oldest child. You know. And then, and it was a brother. When there's a brother, Elijah too. Elijah the second. Elijah, no, they call him E2. Where that E2 came from was simply saying that he was just, it was either E2 or or Junior, and I'm not sure whether he liked that that reference to Junior. But anyway, when he was called Elijah II, and uh, he, he was the assistant supreme captain, in uh, in the nation. Okay, and then it was brother, and when the brother uh, Jabber, who Jabber was that a brother also? Jabber was Herbert. Jabber. Okay, Herbert. Herbert, and he became Jabber Muhammad. Yes. Okay, you mentioned you just mentioned something about uh, I think you said captain or. or a, a minister. How did the captain and the minister? How did that leadership thing play out in the fifties and, and sixties and, and so on? I mean, who was well, over who? I mean, you had captains. Yeah, did you have lieutenants too? Right. Oh, the captain had lieutenants. We didn't have lieutenants. Right. The captain yeah, well, captains had lieutenants. Right. Captains yeah. had lieutenants. Yes. Yeah. The reason why I put it that way is because that's his staff, and he selected that staff, and no one. And no one had a choice to make a lieutenant except him himself, you know. And he had what's called the first lieutenant, who was the sort of the go-to guy for him. But, um, you know, let me just put it this way. It worked out as well as you can hope for, but it had a lot of problems. Had a lot of problems. And, um, but, but, you know... Considering where we were coming from, I, I could say it, it, it did quite well. Um, the captains 
in many instances, other than New York City, were appointed by the ministers themselves. Minister okay. chooses captain. Then the captain would choose his lieutenants. And then they would lieutenant would have staff members. They would have investigators, inspectors, you know, and then uh, just plain clerks who worked under the secretary's office. You had the assistant secretaries and clerks that worked under the secretary's office. And you had the uh, assistant ministers who worked under the minister's minister. But in New York City, the minister didn't choose the captain after the death of Malcolm. Now, what happened before that, I can't bear witness to it. But I can tell you what happened after the death of Malcolm, that uh, a lot of people are under the impression that, and again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Well, yeah, I understand uh, Imam Muhammad uh, Sadiq, and we know you're not trying to be disrespectful. We just want to, you know, uh, set the historical record straight. Well, let me share this with you. No disrespect to to Minister Farrakhan or anybody like that, but in New York City, the minister did not run the city after the death of Malcolm. And I believe that was designed by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad himself. You know, even though, you know, I, I just don't know how how much of this he shared, the minister shared with his his community. But I'm just giving it to you as a as a historical point of view that seems that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, he used a very strange but effective strategy in psychology on all of his staff after the passing of Malcolm. And more or less, I see it as a determination not to get stung again and and to make sure that everyone walked the line and stayed in his or her orbit. So um, so the ministers did in New York City, it, it, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad said who was going to be the captain, who was going to be the secretary, and who was going to be the minister. That's how I put it. New York was no, New York was the heartbeat of the nation of Islam. It was the pulse of the nation of Islam. It, 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 as went New York, so went the rest of the country. People talk about I was in the nation, I was in the nation, and they were in little Yucatan Gulch here, a little place out in, in the uh, suburbs, and three or four people come to meet. It. Look, we'd have an FOI meeting. We have a thousand FOI there. MGT meeting, you could have a thousand MGTs. Thank you. So you, you. So you actually, because you, I know you did mention earlier in the show that you eventually uh, was in New York City, and we're going we're gonna to get to that. I think you went in the, maybe the early 60s, the middle 60s. Is that correct? Middle 60s, yes. Middle 60s. Yes. Yeah, we're going to get that. Since you brought up Malcolm, I, I wanted to ask uh, again in the late 50s, were there any other uh, bright or strong uh, individuals that were outspoken in the nation of Islam that had attracted attention from maybe uh, just, uh, not just the media, but also within the nation of Islam community? I I understand 
from the history that others were strong. There were there were uh, some strong ministers and, and very effective ministers, uh, and even down into the mid '60s, like Jeremiah Shabazz, uh, Son of Thunder from over in New Jersey, uh, um, and that uh, we called him the Son of Thunder. <laughs> That's just I had to think of his name, Minister James Shabazz. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Dr. Lonnie Shabazz, he was a different type, he was a different mindset, but he was very, he was quite effective. And uh, there were there were different people around the country. Then they had uh, some strong ministers out on the West Coast, too, you know. But uh, none of them really, as I understand it, had the impact that Malcolm had, nor had the uh, genius that Malcolm had. When did you first meet Malcolm, brother Eman? I never physically met Malcolm. Okay. I never, I never physically met Malcolm. I mean, you have to keep in mind. See, people don't realize when you're in there, you're not thinking about trying to meet no one. All you're trying to do is get to figure out how you're going to sell them papers, and you know that Malcolm's there. You know that Farcom's there. You know that the different people are there, and you, you know that they're doing the meetings and everything like that. And I was just a little foot soldier, so no, I never, I never met Malcolm physically. But I know plenty of people who walked and talked and conversed with Malcolm, you know, and I worked with Malcolm's staff and many of the people who were involved with Malcolm. But I never physically met Malcolm. Okay, but you, but you, when you say physically, I mean, you saw him, may have seen him, but you didn't work he with was him. In the, in, he was in, in the life. environment of the Nation of Islam where he was right, speaking right. and, and, and you know, at either at meetings that I, I never, I never was, uh, uh, in in Malcolm's league, and keep in mind, now keep in mind, I'm just a little foot soldier back then, you know. And, right. Uh, and you know, it, there was very there's a lot of people turf, do a lot of turf lords in the nation of Islam, you know. Right. Now, also back in that time, did you ever meet or were you aware of meaning either through? Communication, written communication, or just by word of mouth. Were you aware of, of Imam Warth of Dean Muhammad at the time? Yes, yes. I, I I was aware of him through through a lot of negative talk, and I was aware of him through a lot of of uh, mysterious talk. <laughs> you know, he was sort of a legend, and um, they would talk about. The sons of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and how um, they had, you know, how it, like, especially the Honorable Elijah Muhammad sent his sent them a way to study, like, like, say, Akbar, his youngest one, mm-hmm. and uh, it seemed that they sort of uh, never came back to see. He he never came back to see the community and his relationship to the community properly. Imam Warthi Muhammad did not fail that test, but he presented another type of problem, which was he did not accept his father's uh, uh, teaching when he, uh, as he grew and 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 learned the Quran and Arabic and different things like that. And so the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was worried about that, concerned about that. 
And so there was a lot of talk in the community about uh, the sons and some of them becoming uh, uh, hypocrites or disbelievers or that kind of talk, you know, walking away from their father and all like that. So there was a lot of, of negativity around it. There's a lot of mystery around it. Mm-hmm. And uh, ironically, I was in Chicago when uh, Iman Warthi Muhammad returned for the last time and stayed, you know. And I came back and I told Minister Farrakhan, you know, because Minister Farrakhan didn't know. And I happened to be there. I was I went out to meet with Yana Raja Muhammad. And, at that, and when uh, I was there, uh, well, I'll give that because I don't know if we have enough time for me to go into that, you know, for this call. Well, yeah, uh, this is, I guess this is, in the, this is probably what the middle sixties or late sixties now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sir. Really, yeah. We we early seventies. You know, we, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, so, between what what information is necessary to try to answer the question, which will take me. Yeah. I, right. Various errors. Yes, sir. Exactly. Yes, sir. We, we're going to come back to that. Uh, uh, we're going to go to a quick break right quick. When I come back, I want to ask you, Brother Imam, and Brother Yassine, you could also have another question. We around about it. been talking a lot of different things here. This is the New African a radio broadcast. We have Imam Mohammed Sadiq, uh, a Muslim American who has been involved with the religion of Al-Islam for over 60 years, as well as been involved in various uh, civil rights activities for the African-American people, the advancement of the African-American people. And when we come back from this break, I just want to uh, touch on the base, go back to some of the publications in Nation of Islam right around 1960. You can kind of t- give us a, a a new stepping point or a new point to look at when uh, various publications from the uh, Nation of Islam be- became more prevalent throughout the United States, the black uh, or African-American community. So do say, uh, uh, hold, hold your horses there, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll be right back in just uh, one moment here. I actually brought it for my daughters. They, and my daughters really, my their hair has gotten so much thicker, it's gotten longer, and they feel, it's like they had a ball, like ball spots on the side of their head. But um, ever since uh, we've been using it, they no more, their hair has actually grown. Excel Nutraceuticals All-Natural Base HGS has been scientifically developed for the control of eczema of the scalp and hair regrowth. For more information, go to www.xcel-n.com. Yes, hi. My name is Carmen. About a year ago, I had ordered three of the jars of the XL HGS, and I'm here to tell you, Oh, it really, really worked. It stopped my hair from thinning out. My hair is just beautiful, and I'm just so very well pleased. Nutraceuticals, all natural products, call today at 1-800-977-3981. The New African Broadcast is sponsored by XL Nutraceuticals. XL Nutraceuticals produces and manufactures all natural products that help promote clear skin and healthy hair growth. Visit XL Nutraceuticals at www.xcel-n.com or call 1-800-977-3981. And now, back to the new African broadcast.
Welcome back to the New African Broadcast Radio. Assalamu alaikum. This is Brother Muslim Shahid along with my special guest tonight, Yasin Shahid. And this show, the New African, is sponsored by Excel Nutraceuticals. At Excel Nutraceuticals, we produce and manufacture all natural based products for the control of eczema and bad scalp. For more information about all of our fine natural products, you can visit our website at www.xcel-n.com. If you have any questions you would like to ask now, you can call 646-668-8368. That's 646-668-8368. I have again with me Imam Muhammad Sadiq. From the inside looking out, Black Muslim to Muslim America. Assalamu alaikum, brother Imam, and welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, brother Imam, and wa alaikum, assalam to you and your beautiful son. Alhamdulillah. We uh, want to try to round out this first portion of the show, and I'd like to let our radio artists, listen artists, know that we're going to do a series of, of talks during this show and try to bring uh, to focus something about the nation of Islam, the uh, so-called black Muslim movement. Uh, also, we haven't touched on it, but I'm sure we're going to touch on it as we go on into the series, particularly when we start talking about the 60s, uh, how the uh, nation of Islam interacted in the civil rights movement, and also how Imam Muhammad Sadiq, your, your vision of the civil rights movement, and also some of the other things you've done. We haven't talked about it until you're on the legal frontier as well. But I wanted to ask you, uh, do you recall when the first uh, Nation of Islam publication came out where uh, we were doing it maybe on a, a weekly basic basis or a bi-weekly basis? Do you recall what year that probably was? No, because as, as I understand it, the paper that you see in Chicago that the Minister Farrakhan has now in the final call, that's not an original name by Minister Farrakhan. That paper, the final call, was the early paper that was produced by Farad Muhammad or Minister Farad Muhammad or Professor Farad Muhammad or Dr. Farad Muhammad. And, uh, and so the final call would be the original paper and probably the first paper, and that was much before my time. Okay, so what about Muhammad Speaks? Okay, Muhammad Speaks, there was a, there's a gap in between that. And then there were efforts, little periodicals, sometimes monthlies or bi-monthlies or whatever, things came out. But the Muhammad Speaks newspaper initially was not, as I understand it, a national paper. It was New York paper. It was a paper put together by Malcolm, Malcolm himself, came up with that idea and it was it, it, its success was of such that it was adopted for the entire community and it was um, designed then 
to speak to a national concern as opposed to a, a concern in one major city, very important city, but not so important that it, it should preclude uh, addressing the other uh, communities around the country. And, and what about what year was this when Muhammad Speaks um Probably coming out as as a as a paper, or even a local paper in New York, but as a national paper as well. If I understand it right, it had to be either late fifties and early sixties, right in that period there, you know. But I don't know the exact date. That would be more of a question that I could get answered. Contacting Sister Aisha Mustafa, who is quite uh, learned for the history of the paper and things like that. Okay. And was it the same way? I know when I came introduced to the Nation of Islam around 1973-74, that was basically at the ending of the Elijah Muhammad's mission here or the leadership. Uh, was it the same way in uh, in the 70s as in around 1960 where, you know, you were required to take so many papers or you were or was strongly suggested to you that you take so many papers? Uh, if you're talking about a deal you couldn't refuse, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the paper, well, see, there's a psychology in it. Each, the ministers were uh, in competition with one another to please the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And the Honorable Elijah Muhammad saw the paper as the um, fuel to keep the community financially afloat and 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 also it it carried the word to the public to help the community grow and so with that uh it was strongly uh, projected and suggested that the paper be sold and that every able-bodied man would take a quota and each minister uh would would impress upon his captain and his captain then in turn would impress upon his uh, his, uh the men of the FOI that each one should take a quota and like when you come in the door they want to start you off with 50 papers or 25 papers from Jump Street and next thing you know you, you say within a few months you're doing 100 and then 200 then in no time, I mean, the 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 the, the uh, quota was 300 for each man, and um, that it it may have a very excellent outward appeal, like people said, oh, those men selling those magazines, they just look so nice and everything. Well, that's nice, but like Imam Wardi Muhammad said, those men need to be looking out for their homes first and their families, and. They can't afford to buying 300 papers standing around on corners trying to hawk them and sell them while they could be or should be providing for their families, you know. And so um, these this quota of 300 papers, I hear a lot of people talking about, yeah, I took 300, I drove the 300. And now, there were no 300 salesmen. Maybe once in a while someone would sell 300. But not every week consistently. Some people, you, you, the best had to eat some of those papers. I don't care who they were. 
And anybody right. try to convince you that they sold 300 every week, you know, they're living a fairy tale, you know, because, you know, what they did, brothers' brothers' homes were breaking up and everything. The sisters were upset because papers were everywhere in the house. They were everywhere. And see, the way that went in the Nation of Islam, see, you know, the Nation of Islam had some excellent, excellent, excellent uh disciplines and ways of handling things and it had some very bad ways of dealing with some things and one of the bad ways I say is that you had no actual right to privacy you were totally in the nation of Islam you were totally denied any personal privacy what I mean by that is that any given time if the lieutenant or the inspector would knock on your door say he wants to see your house and he wants to inspect your house, he could come in there and you're expected to let him in unannounced, okay? So he can inspect your house to make sure that you don't have paper stacked up in there, to make sure you're keeping a clean home, to make sure you're conduct I mean, all those kind of things. And and that has its positive points, but it destroys, in my mind's eye, the freedom that and, and dignity that every man should have where there's a line that has to be drawn somewhere. But anyhow, that's the way it went. And so in many instances, the lieutenants would, they call, the lieutenants would ride. We call it in New York, ride. So we're going to ride tonight. So what does that mean? Ride tonight means <clears throat> there's a lot of brothers said that you, 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 were, you, you were compelled to come to the temple every time we had a meeting and to be there on time, to be dressed appropriately. And so uh, if you didn't come, especially the night when the papers came in, then the lieutenants, after they would distribute the papers, say say we have it, it uh, at Temple Number uh, 7C, because in New York City we had t- temples A, B, C, and it, it went way up to the alphabet, but the, the, the basic temples were A, B, and C, A, B, C, and D. And so... If you were in Temple 7A, and uh, they were expecting about 50 FOI that night at least, maybe 100, and maybe only uh, half of that amount showed up, then the lieutenants would ride. That means they would take all of the papers, put them in their cars, and two lieutenants would have you, and then they would uh, come knock on your door, you know, and the sister comes, or the wife would come to the door. Who's here? This brother, Lieutenant so and so. You know, okay, so you got to open that door. You know, okay. And uh, I got your papers, brother. You know, you got the money for your papers. You know, why, well, well, Lieutenant, I don't have. Well, you, you got to, brother. You, when you come out to the temple Sunday, we want this money to be paid for. Bloom, here's your three hundred. So the lieutenants would ride, and they would bring the papers. And so there wasn't no duck in the papers. You either got them, picked them up at the temple, or they would bring them to you. You know, mm-hmm. so the irony of that is that people they wanted to see the community advance, but there were so many other things and obligations facing you that you just could not dedicate the necessary time that it took to sell three hundred papers. We would go I on see. call out every week. I'd go on call outs. We'd go into the different cities and go into the projects and we always what we would do on call outs we we'd go to the projects in New York. I mean that's that's almost a world in itself. And we'd get on the elevator and go all the way up to the top floor 
you go to the top floor. We start at the top floor, knock on all the doors, and just keep going all the way until you get all the way back. Sometimes there's 30 floors, and you, you're hitting every door in there. And you've been in all kinds of homes, seeing all kinds of strange stuff and witnessing all kinds of crazy stuff going on. Uh, hallways and stairways smelling like urine and robberies going on and sex and everything, all the strangest stuff in the world, you know. But anyway, it went, you had to sell those papers, and we would do the best we can. In many instances, we would, each person would sell maybe on a Saturday afternoon, maybe you could sell 40 or 50 papers, and you would do pretty good. But still, trying to sell 300, you know. Was, was a task. And, yes, and I don't believe, you know, I, I hear, I hear, I hear the uh, uh, people saying, it. and some people they they may have had a good day here, a good day there, but right. I guarantee, if they would come to grips with the reality, most likely they'll realize that they did not sell three hundred. They they may have done a very good job, and they have taken three hundred, but what and what happened as a result of that was that the papers. In many instances, had to be collected. What the <laughs> captain did, they parked a truck in Manhattan, and uh, the worry went out. Just bring your overloaded papers and just throw them on the truck, you know. But right, you e- email. Right, email, yeah. Sadiq. We got about four minutes left. What I want you to do, you've done a very good job of of giving us a lot of insight on the nation of Islam from. from uh, early, early on to about 1960. I want you to summarize just a couple of minutes uh, your your idea, your your vision, or your recollection of how uh, the Black Muslim uh, or the Nation of Islam movement uh, around from 50 to 60 was. And just tell us, give us a brief uh, um, summary, and then we're gonna we're gonna pick this up Wednesday again, ladies and gentlemen, at seven o'clock. So, brother, ma'am, I won't I'll hold you up. Just tell us a little bit, summarize it for us so we can move on here. Well, uh, in summary, I would say the the nation of this, first of all, this idea of black Muslim was not anything that we had gave uh, mm-hmm. a name to ourselves. This was an idea that came from the media. I think even Mike Wallace might have been a part of the black Muslim idea, as well as uh, <clears throat> C. Eric Lincoln and others who spoke in those terminologies. We never spoke in those terminologies, though we would sometimes uh, talk from their reference point using that. But uh, the Nation of Islam, the beautiful thing about it was that it offered an alternative and hope for for a downtrodden people, a people who had been abused beyond your wildest imagination. And even as I get older and older and look back and look at just what's going on today, it just makes me realize how abused our people are and how sick we have become as a result of of being denied uh, a, a human participation in, in society. So the Nation of Islam offered a viable and excellent alternative for all of those who were seeking a way out from this terrible circumstance that we found ourselves in. And I still say it was, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I thank Allah for it. I woke up every day. Alhamdulillah. time that I became a Muslim, excited, and I'm excited even today. All right. No, no, no we're going to 
close it out, Brother Imam. We appreciate you coming on the show that, tonight. And we hope to see you. Yes, sir. And I hope to see you again. Uh, again, Wednesday night, we're going to pick this up uh, from the inside looking out, Black Muslim to Muslim America. We're going to start from 1960. And I know we have a lot to talk about because the 60 was a roaring uh, uh, age, an, an era, rather, of, of activity, particularly the African-American people. Uh, the uh, Malcolm became, Malcolm X became very popular in the 60s. The, the emergence of Martin Luther King, the Civil Rights Movement, some of the uh, problems we saw, uh, the Jim Crow uh, activity in the South. Uh, so we have a lot to talk about Wednesday night, so we want all our guests to Come back and show up again. You've been listening to the new African broadcast. Have a good night. As-salamu alaykum. You have been listening to the new African broadcast, a media program dedicated to the consciousness and the positive moral growth of the black youth of America. Thank you for giving us your attention and tune in to our next broadcast. As-salamu alaykum.